0: Our Father, we thank you for the revelation you've given of this wondrous mystery in your word. And we know that we need two things to happen for it to be of benefit to us. We need you to open and reveal your heart, and you have done that in your word. We also need for you to remove the blinders from our hearts. Many come to church with blinders on the heart, uh, not convinced that it's important to know Christ, not convinced that these truths make a difference, not convinced of their need of him. We pray, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit to remove those blinders that we see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and by your grace, see how much we need him, see how much he means to us, see how much he means and the glory of who he is. This is the the work that the Spirit of God delights to do and we pray that he will do that work here today as we gaze on Christ revealed in Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the sermon title asks the question, who is Jesus Christ? And we will see today that the real Jesus Christ is, well, I'm not going to fill the blank in right now. I'll come back to that in just a moment, is there's a question that's asked over and over again in the New Testament. We see it in a number of places. To select just a few in Luke chapter 9, King Herod asked, who is this man about whom I hear such things? In Matthew 21, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? In fact, a few years later, rabid anti-Christian terrorist Saul of Tarsus is on his way to Damascus. And he's stricken with a vision of the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And what he says, confronted with Christ, is, who are you? Lord. Jesus himself pressed that same question. We, we saw it in Matthew 16. Mark speaks of it in chapter 8 of his gospel. He's asking his disciples, Jesus is, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Now well, there's the question who is Jesus Christ? Everything depends on getting the answer to that question right. Because as Paul said, even in his day, 2 Corinthians 11, there are many Jesuses. He says, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you did not receive, or a different gospel which you did not accept, you bear this beautifully. Now, I want to tell you that was not meant as a compliment. That was meant to express his, his great concern for them and their complete lack of discernment about these critical matters. He was concerned about their gullibility. And would he have less concern today? There have been a steady stream of other Jesuses and never lacking people to believe in those other Jesuses. But only one Jesus is real. Only one Jesus can save That's the Jesus we want to be sure that we know truly. So today we begin answering the question, who is Jesus Christ? And today we look at this truth. The real Jesus Christ is fully God. That's what goes in those blanks. The real Jesus Christ is fully God. You follow along with your notes and your Bible open and your pen or pencil going You'll not only understand that better, you'll be able to show other people after today's lesson who Jesus Christ is. He is fully God. So, first, we examine this by looking at persistent Old Testament indications. I didn't say that wrong. Persistent Old Testament indications. Now, you might have thought thought, well, you want to talk about the deity of Christ, you've got to talk about John 1.1. 1, 1. I mean, we were just there. That's where you start when you talk about Christ's deity. That's a thing we see in the New Testament. Oh, no, it isn't. In fact, I insist that it isn't. In fact, I mean to show you that it isn't. And when we're done, you'll be able to show others as well. First, we're going to look at the book of Genesis. Yes, to see about Christ's deity, we go all the way back to Genesis. And we'll look at chapter 1 and verse 26. Take a look there. Open your Bibles. You'll need them. We'll be looking at several places. Genesis 1 26. Sixth day, God has already created the land animals, but he's not done. Here's a second act he undertakes. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness so they will have dominion and so forth. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, what is that all about? In all of this that we look at in the Old Testament and New, we have to remember the central truth of Deuteronomy 6, 5. I've stressed that that's a good one for all Christians to know. Who can tell me what does Deuteronomy 6, 5 say? Thanks, Travis. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So nothing we are looking at will be an exception to that. God is one. And yet here he says us. So what is that about? What is this text saying? Well, you can look at many even Christian scholars and you'll see an array of opinions. For instance, one named uh, Kyle, a great German commentator from the 1800s, says that it's the plural of majesty or the plural of powers, whatever exactly that means. Another says it's the plural of fullness. Another, and this is a widespread opinion, says that God's talking to the heavenly court. He's surrounded by angels. And so he says to this court of angels, let us make God in our uh, man in our image. And I just want to say before we go on that these are not unbelievers I'm talking about. These are not liberals or skeptics. And so I'm going to show you why the text says what I'm telling you. It says you'll be able to see for yourself if you're looking in your Bible and taking some notes. And so you won't be surprised if you go to a commentary and you see that some Christian scholar doesn't believe this, you'll have some questions that I bet you he doesn't even bring up or answer, even though they're not very particularly subtle. So us, plural of majesty, speaking to the heavenly court. Well, one thing we need to note for certain is that None other than God did the work of creation. God alone created, and He makes a big deal about that. Write down Isaiah 44:24. I'll read it to you for time's sake. Isaiah 44:24. You won't remember it. Please write it down. I wouldn't remember it. Thus says Yahweh, your redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb: I, Yahweh, am the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself, and spreading out the earth all alone so god makes a big deal out of the fact that he alone created none other than god did the work of creation and god did not consult anyone in creation he makes a big deal about that too write down isaiah 40:13 isaiah 40:13 who has encompassed the spirit of yahweh or as his counselor has informed him And the answer to that is nobody. He's never needed the advice of any creature. And he's not taking the advice of a creature here. But you want a a verse that rules all this out even more clearly. All you have to do is read the next verse. So you've got your Bibles open. Look down at the next verse. What does the next verse say? And God and the angels created man in their image? What does it say? And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there is something about this God that is absolutely one, as Deuteronomy 6.5 says, and there's something about God that is plural, so that he can say us speaking to himself. Add to that the fact that we are never said to be created in the image of angels. Never. You will not find that. The Old and New Testament alike say that we are created in the image of God, not God and the angels. But then what makes it even certain is when you add later revelation. Now, let me make as plain to you as I can. You will hear people say that the New Testament comes along and says new things that weren't in the Old Testament. And that well, there's, there's one area of teaching that Paul says was a mystery that was not revealed in the Old Testament. And this is not it. It's about the church. This is not it. But uh, in fact, the New Testament doesn't come and say, well, the Old Testament didn't say any of this, but we're just telling you this. No, the New Testament brought out the meaning that's already in the Old Testament. And so we see in the New Testament, uh, we just read it, John 1.3. What does John 1.3 say? Of Jesus, it says, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so does that include man? Well, I think he says all things. And he says nothing wasn't. But he says through him. So very plainly, John sets forth, and other verses do as well, that God the Father created through the agency of God the Son. That's the us. It's Father and Son taking consultation together. And the Holy Spirit present as well, as we saw in verse 2. The Spirit of God Covered over the face of the waters. That's the us. The us is God. One God and yet more than one person. Three persons. So we see him in Genesis chapter 1. Now, these verses I'm looking at, they're not at all exhaustive, but I'm looking at a, a couple of different kinds for you. But again, I say, please be opening your Bible to these and looking at the words with me. Turn to chapter 18. And this is the story about Sodom and Gomorrah. Had you ever thought of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as being something that reveals truth about the Trinity? I would imagine not, unless you'd studied it, and this, and yet it does. Look at Genesis 18, and Abraham is just hanging, as he was wont to do when he's not being in the pages of Scripture. <laughs> and Genesis 18:1, we read, And Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day, something we know something about, no air conditioning. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing nearby. And he ran and he bowed down. Now, I hasten to say it's not three men because it's the Trinity. We, we will see very clearly that two of those men are not Yahweh. But this is an apparition of Yahweh, verse 1 tells us. But three men are present. Now, I will trace with you as you look at the text with me. I will show you. You'll see what happens to these three individuals. So we just fast forward to verse 20. And Yahweh said, explaining why he had come down. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done it entirely according to its outcry. Which has come to me. And so verse 22 says what? You're looking at the words, what did the men do? They turned away and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before Yahweh. So how many left? All you have to do is fast you just flip ahead to chapter 19 verse 1 and you see then the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So two of these three individuals are angels we now learn in 19:1 and those two turn away and they leave Abraham standing before Yahweh. Now I'm going to ask you a question that seems so obvious that you'll think it's a trick question but i don't ask you trick questions this is just an important detail as abraham is standing before yahweh where is yahweh is he up in heaven or is he down on earth he's on earth three men appeared before him two went to sodom one remained and now we learned that they were angels and he was yahweh and and then uh and it commences this, uh, this bargaining where Abraham pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah, 50 righteous men, 40, 30, and he goes down and down. And at the end of it, that's what concerns us. Verse 33, as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, Yahweh departed and Abraham returned to his place. Now, where did he go? The same Hebrew verb halak had been used in verse 22. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. And so you could translate this, Yahweh went. Where did he go? Well, where did he say he was going to go at the start? Sodom. He came to look at Sodom and see whether it was what he'd heard. He's, it's a... It's a anthropomorphic way of saying he's making absolutely sure before he judges that it's going to be a just judgment. So the two angels are already there, but now Yahweh turns to make his way there. And you know the story, a horrible story of the two angels there and Lot and his daughters and Lot being rescued and so forth and so on. That doesn't concern us today. Um, but what happens after Lot is rescued? Look at chapter 19, verse 24, and here, here is the, the kicker. And Yahweh reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, what does it say next? From Yahweh out of heaven. What, two Yahwehs? Well, no, they're just both in heaven. Oh, wait a minute, but what did we notice before? Yahweh was on earth. Yahweh was on earth, and then he turned to go, and where did he say he was going to go? He was going to go to Sodom to see if it was the way he'd heard it. So there's Yahweh on earth, but another Yahweh, verse 24. Yahweh reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. Now, how many gods are there? Just one God. But there is a God, Yahweh, on earth and a God, Yahweh, in heaven. One God, but two persons. We're not to the Gospel of John yet. We're still in Genesis. But we see Genesis saying exactly what the first verse of John says. What does the first verse of John say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God, and He was with God. The same essence as God, but the Son of the Father, a distinct person from the Father, in the essence of the one God. So, uh, we're not out of Genesis, and we don't need to leave Genesis. We're going to look next, uh, letter B, the angel of Yahweh, A-N-G-E-L, you know how to spell angel, but if you miss up the last two words, you've got angles, so you want to make sure you get it right. The angel of Yahweh, you don't want to get it crooked. So I ask, the what now? <laughs> the angel of Yahweh, what, what does angel mean? Well, you can answer that question, most of you, I bet. What does the word angel mean? It means messenger, but does the word itself mean... Now, this is going to sound tricky, but it's not. Just maybe a little uh, dense. (laughs) But does the word mean created being? No, the word doesn't mean created being any more than king or lord or father means created being. Because we call God king, and we call him lord, and we call him father. It's just that every other king, lord, and father is a created being. But when we use the title of God... Well, he's not a created being, and the Word doesn't make him one. Uh, That's going to become important. You may not see it now, but you'll see it in a few minutes uh, if you work with me here and stay with me here. The word angel itself just means messenger. So there are at least 13 passages in the Old Testament, 13 passages, where we meet a character, an individual, a being, called the angel of Yahweh, who both speaks of Yahweh as if he were distinct from Yahweh, but he speaks as Yahweh, as if he himself were Yahweh, as if, if I could put it a certain way, as if he both were God and with God, this angel who is a messenger of Yahweh. But if he's Yahweh, he's not a created being. I say there's 13 passages. We'll just look at one. Look at your Bible at Genesis 16, and we'll be focusing on verses 7 through 14. Now here's the ugly little domestic story of Sarai and Hagar and Abram at this point. And uh, Sarai uh, mistreats Hagar and, and she flees, basically. She's in the desert. So our story commences at verse 7. Now the angel of Yahweh, others, there's our character, our, our, our individual... The angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur, and speaks with her. And he says to her in verse 9, Return to your mistress and humble yourself under her hands. Moreover, the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your seed so that they will be too many to be counted. I will multiply your seed. Now, where do you see a created angel saying that he is going to create, to multiply seed? I believe never. I don't think I've ever, ever seen a created angel giving, having the power to give life like this. And yet, so he's speaking of doing something that God does, but he's saying he's going to do it, but he's called an angel, but we've got to remember, angel doesn't mean created being. What does it mean? It means a messenger, one who comes to bring Yahweh's word. So, but what he says is, I will multiply your seed. There'll be many. And the angel of Yahweh said to her further, you with child, you call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has heard your affliction. Now there's the two things that I just said we see in this character. He speaks as if he were Yahweh, but then he speaks in the third person of Yahweh. I will multiply your seed. Yahweh has heard your petition. So he's both with God and He's God. Who, who else is that? John 1.1? Who's that? Well, Jesus is God and is with God. The angel of Yahweh is God and he's with God. Now you say, well, I'm not sure that that's exactly what this is saying. Well, were you there? You weren't there. I wasn't there. Who was there? Well, Hagar was there. What does she say about it? Look at verse 13. Then she called the name of Yahweh. What's the next words? Who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I remained alive here after seeing him? She's not wondering how can she, she can be alive after seeing an angel, a created being. She's wondering how she can still be alive after seeing God, the messenger of Yahweh, who is himself also Yahweh. You are a God who sees. And so she names it Be'er Lachai Ro'eh, meaning the, the well of the one who lives and sees me meaning Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh. And I say this is just one. There's at least 12 other passages that speak of this person and show the same things. He speaks as if he were God, and he speaks of God. He is, you could say, the second person of the Godhead, of the deity. And indeed, he is exactly that. Now turn to another part of Scripture. Turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, not not Psalm 1, verse 10. That would be frustrating to try to find. But Psalm 110, and we'll look at verses 1 and 4. It's well known. You've heard this many times. It's a psalm of David. Now, that's very important. When you went through my teaching on psalms, I made a big point that, that, that... When a psalm says it was by a certain person, it it means it. That's part of the psalm. That's part of Scripture. It's very important to get that this psalm was written by David. It's just one word in Hebrew, but it's a very important word, as, as you'll see. It makes a big deal, a big difference to know David wrote this psalm. So David says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. And then verse 4 says, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now Jesus cites this and he has a question to ask. He asks the, the religious experts of his day, well, whose son is Messiah? And they say, we know that one. Duh. He's, he's David's son. Duh. David's son. And so then he asks them, Luke twenty forty one. note it down. Luke 20, 41, he says, how is it that they say that Christ is David's son when David calls him his Lord? In Psalm 110, how can Christ be his son if David calls him his Lord? Well, now think this through. Who did David, who who is he talking about when David wrote, Yahweh says to my Lord? How many lords did David have? Think about it. Well, he had Saul, if you're talking about You know history. I mean, he he didn't have another king. The only king he had was Saul. Well, did Saul reign forever? Did, Did Yahweh give him an eternal throne? Did Yahweh make Saul a priest forever, according to the Melchizedek? No to all of those questions. Saul was rejected from the kingship. This isn't talking about Saul. So who's this talking about? Who could Yahweh say sit at not just on the throne of David, but sit at my right hand? as my equal, sit at my right hand and make him a priest forever. Well, to answer Jesus' question as he meant it to be answered, but they didn't answer his question, the Messiah is both. As to his eternal nature, he is David's Lord. But as to his human nature, he is David's son. David calls him Lord because he is Yahweh the Son. He is God the Son. And David even attests to this. Another passage, look at, well, just a verse in this case, Isaiah 9-6, but do turn there in your Bible, please, and look at Isaiah 9-6. A little early for Christmas, but this is a verse you hear at Christmas time a lot. You hear it in Handel's Messiah, sung beautifully. I will not sing it for you at this point, but just read it together. Isaiah 9-6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Pele Goetz, wonderful counselor, El Gibor, mighty God, Aviad, eternal father, Sar Shalom, prince of peace. So this son, who is a human being, obviously, how do I know that? He's a child. God's not called a child. He's a son. God's not called a son. God the father certainly isn't. And he's born. <laughs> God the Father's not said to be born. He's called Wonderful Counselor. He's called Mighty God. This child who would be born is Mighty God. Now, if you ever bring that up to a Jehovah's Witness, I, I can tell you what they'll say. Can one of you want to shout out, do you know what their answer, answer to that is? What do they say? He's called Mighty God. And they say, he's not called Almighty God. He's not called Almighty God. They think they have a big point there because they think Jesus is a little God that God created. God created Jesus before he created everything else. But Jesus is just a created being. He's a small G God. He's not a real God and that falls afoul of Deuteronomy six five, just like all polytheism does. That's just polytheism. There's just one God. Jesus is created. He's not a God at all, really, not a true God, but mighty God. Okay, well, that's fine. So you're saying if, if he's, your argument is then if he's mighty God, he can't be Jehovah God. He can't be almighty God. He can't be the true God. Well, then just look at the very next chapter, and I hope you're doing as I ask. Look at the very next chapter. Look at Isaiah chapter 10, and we'll look at verses 20 and 21, just a little bit away from what Isaiah wrote here. Isaiah ten twenty. Now it will be in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Now tell me, who are they going to rely on? A little louder, please. Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. I, I don't hear you real well up here, so you need to be nice and loud. They're going to rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. And then verse 21 says, a remnant, oh, we we're just talking about the remnant, will return, we just read that, the remnant of Jacob to, to who? The mighty God. Thank you, thank you. The mighty God. And who is the mighty God? We just said, He's Yahweh. So Isaiah calls Yahweh the mighty God. Isaiah calls Messiah, the mighty God, who is Isaiah saying Messiah is? He's Yahweh. He's Yahweh. Not a created being. He's God. So, full deity. This child, though born a human being, though born of a virgin, will be God incarnate. Just like John says. So don't you see, then just as I said a moment ago, when John says the word was God and the Word was with God, is he saying something that there is none of that in the Old Testament? No, no, he's not. And when he says the Word who was God became flesh and dwelt among us, so who is God and a human being, was he then saying something? There's nothing about that in the Old Testament. In talking about God becoming a human being, was He saying something? There was nothing about that in the Old Testament. No, we just saw it in Isaiah 9. A child will be born to us. That child will be mighty God. So it's not just a New Testament revelation. It's a biblical truth. So now, having seen it in persistent Old Testament indications, we see it Roman numeral 2 in plain New Testament revelations. But the Old Testament points to in a dozen different ways the New Testament straight up says. So letter A Jesus is directly called God in so many words. And you'll still hear people say well the New Testament never says Jesus is God. Yes that's true. It never once says it. It says it over and over and over and over. First, we just read John 1, verses 1, 14, 17, and 18. We just read it together. What does it say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In person, He was distinct. In essence, He was the same, because there's just one God. There's just one essence. Father and Son and Spirit share the same essence, but they are distinct as to their persons, The Father begets the Son, the Son is begotten of the Father. Father and Son send and breathe forth the Spirit. He is sent by Father and Son. They're they're distinct persons, but they subsist in the one divine essence. So, um, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And if somebody were to say, I'm totally confused. How can the Word become flesh if He's God? So that means God turns into a human being. The answer to that is not just no, but no, that can't be true. Why can't it be true that God turns into a human being and stops being God? What's one of the attributes of God? He's unchangeable. He's immutable. If one ever was God, he always will be. If one ever wasn't God, he won't become. The cult that says that we can become God, uh, it's not possible. (laughs) If we ever weren't, we never will be. If we ever were, we always would be. And Jesus always is God, but he takes on the human nature so that he is God and man without changing his deity, without compromising his humanity, without confusing the two. He is perfectly God and perfectly man. So verse 17, Jesus hasn't been named at this point, but verse 17 names him. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. This is a a begetting that is an eternal begetting. It, It didn't happen at some point and change things, it's an eternal state, because God is eternal. Within the Trinity the the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and given the full essence of the Father, so that he is fully God. And incarnate, he made him known. He explained him. So there's one plain place. Another is Second Peter one one. Take a look there with me. Bless you. Second Peter one one And it's striking just how casually the apostles say these things. But 2 Peter 1, 1, the apostle says, Simeon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of our God and Savior. He is both of those things to us. And equally... He's not either if He isn't both. He's not our Savior if He's not our God. And He's not our God if He's not our Savior. He would just be our judge and our condemner. But not the God who we own and who owns us and who loves us and counts us His own unless He had saved us. And Jesus affects both. He is our God and Savior. And uh, look at one more and then just talk about it a little bit. So Peter says this. Peter, this from birth monotheistic Jew without stopping and explaining it calls Jesus our God and Savior. The next is Titus 2.13. We'll turn there together. Titus 2.13. So in verse 11, Paul begins talking about the appearing of the grace of God and what the grace of God does for us teaching us to live godly in the present age. And verse 13 says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This, This Jew, this not just Jew, but formally educated Jew, educated at the feet of one of the great rabbis of the day, the Rabbi Gamaliel, Feeding on the mother's milk of monotheism from from his earliest days, Uh, an anti Christian terrorist until he saw Jesus Christ. And now he says, without hesitating or stopping to explain it, that Jesus is our great God and Savior. And what does it mean to say He's ours? It means we worship Him. We own Him as our God. We worship Him as our God. We are His people. He is our God. He's our God and our Savior. Now, the thing about all of these passages, and there are a number of others, is that they they all just, I mean, they're almost by the way, right? He doesn't stop and explain himself. Now, here's why I can call Jesus God. And that's a striking thing. You need to think about that. What what does receive a certain amount of attention in the letters? What new thing? The fact that they don't keep the law of Moses. They're not under the law of Moses. That they don't need to, to be circumcised. Does that receive a few pages in the New Testament? Yes, it does. That's a new thing, that you can be of God's people and you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to keep the calendar. You don't need to observe the rituals and and, and the dates and the festivals. This is a big change. And so that needs to be explained in the New Testament. And you see it explained in Acts. You see it explained in Galatians. You see the whole letter of Hebrews kind of circling around those themes, right? It's a big deal. What don't you see anything like that about in the New Testament? The deity of Christ. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Why don't they? You'd think that that would be a big thing to explain. Well, I don't think that I have the complete answer to that, except to say that it was, that was beginning truth. That was not something that, well, we'll get you to believe in Jesus and later we'll tell you about how he's God. That's where we start, like Thomas did, bowing before Jesus as as our Lord and God. So how could this be just rolled out like this? Well, hopefully, as you understand now, because of the sorts of clues I just showed you, because this was in their New Testament, and this would be the sort of thing when they, they knew about the deity of Christ, they would say, "Oh, I was wondered about that. I was wondered who that, that angel of Yahweh character was. I was wondered about the "us." I was wondered about the word for God being plural. I was wondered about the spirit of God being there in verse two. That makes perfect sense. Now I understand what all that means. It, 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 it put the puzzle, it's like having the pieces and seeing the picture for the puzzle and saying, ah, oh, now I understand how all those things go together. That was the effect that it had on them, I think. And so, uh, because of that, and also because of what Jesus himself said, and that's what we're going to look at now, the new Jesus is directly called God, letter A. Letter B also, Jesus accepts worship as God. Jesus accepts worship as God. Now, to feel the impact of this, I want to establish a baseline uh, to begin with as to how a normal person would react, a normal created person would react to being worshipped as God. So first we'll look at Acts 14, verses 11 through 15. So turn there, please. Acts 14, just the fifth book in your New Testament, pretty easy to find. Acts 14, and here is Paul in a missionary journey. He's out of Israel, heading towards pagan lands, as we'll see shortly. (laughs) Verse 11, after this act of healing that's been performed. Verse 11, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And then the priest of Zeus came out, whose temple was just outside the city. He brought oxen and garlands to the gates and was wanting to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now They're, they're all saying, you know, they're, they're looking at this barbecue they're putting together and not understanding because they don't speak Lyconian, right? So they're seeing all this happening. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, somebody explained what they were saying. How did they respond to being worshiped as God? Oh, that's lovely. We, these lovely local customs. How, how hospitable of you. Sure, we'd love to have some of that that uh, barbecue. That smells delicious. Is that what they say? No, look at verse 14. They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowds, crying out, not just saying calmly, but crying out, saying, men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of the same nature as you, proclaiming the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Are they sanguine and calm about being worshiped as God? No, not at all. As soon as they know they're doing it, they tear their clothes and they start shouting, "Stop! Stop! Stop! This is exactly what we're preaching that you need to not do. That's men. What about angels? Angels know that they're very glorious and scary. How would, a, how would an angel act if, if he were worshiped? No need to speculate. We can find out. Turn to the last book in your Bible. One of the two easiest to find. Turn to the last chapter of the last book of your Bible. Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. "'I, John, am the one who was hearing and seeing these things. And when I heard and saw, he just must have been absolutely overwhelmed and all of the circuits in his brain utterly fused, because he fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things.' But he said to me, oh, I really appreciate that, and I understand that you're overwhelmed by my gloriousness, but really, really, probably not something you shouldn't go on to. No, that's not what the angel says at all. What does he say? Do not do that. Literally, the Greek is see not. (laughs) The idea being, you, you make sure you don't do that. Do not do that. I'm a fellow slave with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So there we go. Men or angels, when men try to worship them, what's their response? Horror. An instant refusal. Do not do that. In no unclear terms. Well, now, now that we've got a baseline, number two, let's see Christ's response to being worshipped as God. You turn to John chapter 20. And do please turn to John chapter 20. And here Jesus is resurrected. And he's appeared to the apostles. Oh, except which one? Thomas. And Thomas says, sure, I'd be glad to believe in the resurrection if I could see the marks in his hands inside. And Jesus appears and he says, say, Thomas, bring over here and put your hand into my the marks in my hands inside, showing two things. One is that he's there and perhaps the even scarier of the two, is he'd heard what Thomas said. Even though he had not been visibly there when Thomas was talking, he knew what Thomas had said. And so Thomas, seeing all this, is also overwhelmed. And what does he do? Verse 28, he answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, I've I've heard all sorts of ways to try to make this not be what it plainly is. I've heard people say, well, he just was um, overwhelmed. And so he just exclaimed, you know, like we say, oh my God. He's just saying, oh my Lord and my God. So really, at this moment, Thomas casually blasphemes. He takes God's name in vain. Well, we would expect to see a sharp reprimand from Jesus, right? If he just took God's name in vain, right? Absolutely. Another is uh, that, that Thomas is saying, to Jesus, my Lord... I'm not kidding. This is actually, seriously, I've heard this. He says to Jesus, my Lord, and then he turns to heaven. And he says, and my God. So he's not calling Jesus God. He's calling... Now, what's the trouble with that? Look at the verse. What does the verse expressly say? He said, to him. Exactly right. He answered and said, to him. He called Jesus his Lord, and he called Jesus his God. So... How would an apostle or an angel have responded to that? We don't need to guess. We just saw it. How how did they respond? Horror and rejection. How did Jesus respond? Again, we don't need to guess. Just read the next verse. Because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Believed what? That he is Lord and God. In other words, so far from rebuking Thomas, Jesus pronounces a blessing on him for confessing him as Lord and God. He gives, if you will, his seal of approval on Thomas' confession of his deity. In effect, he's saying, what took you so long to realize that I am Lord and God? Well, that's very, very powerful, is it not? Jesus, in contrast to apostles and angels, Jesus accepts worship as God, but it goes further than that. Jesus not only accepts worship as God, Jesus demands worship as God. Letter C. Jesus demands worship as God. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Now, we just studied this story in Matthew 19, so we'll take a look at Mark's... Uh, telling of it, each, uh, each writer gives a little different angle. So Mark 10, verses 17 and 18, hope you all are there. So, he was setting out on a journey, Jesus was, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God." alone? Why do you call me good? Now, there have been people who've said, oh, so Jesus is saying he's not good. He's a sinner. Now, if so, then this verse contradicts the entire rest of the Bible. So I think that an unlikely interpretation. Unlikely, in fact, impossible. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say, why do you call me good when I'm a sinner? Does he say, don't call me good? Does he? No, he does not. What does he say? He says, why do you call me good? Now, why is he doing that? Because here's this young man, as we saw last week, all full of himself, very righteous, very proud. He's checked all the boxes and he knows it. And nobody, he'll tell you. So you don't need to guess. He has kept the law since he was a child. All of it, all the commandments. And he comes up and he says to Jesus, what can I do to you etern- Good teacher, what good thing may I do to inter- inherit eternal life? And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to shock him, penetrate through his veneer of pride. He wants to shatter him and make him really think. So what does he do here when he says, why do you call me good? Well, he doesn't say he's not good. He says only God is good. So what's he asking the young man? Are you saying I'm God. Right away, just the first flattering thing he says to Jesus. Just a, a, a formality, just a toss-off. But Jesus catches the toss-off, brings it back and says, So, you call me a good teacher. Only God is good. Are you calling me good? Now, he needs to establish that too because he's going to show him that he's not as good as he thinks he is either. But is he really saying who Jesus is? No, this is not Jesus denying that he's God. It's Jesus affirming that he's God. You Remember the story I told you to illustrate this last week of the, the fellow golfing who, who has top secret clearance and starts telling stories to the guy he's golfing with that he shouldn't be saying to someone who doesn't have the same clearance. And so um, the guy says to him, well, you know, you should only be saying stuff like that to the president, but in my story, he is the president. So he's asking the fellow, do you know that? Do you know you're talking to the president or are you violating national security? And so Jesus is saying here, do you know that I'm good and because I'm God or are you blaspheming God by calling a sinner good? So Jesus demands to be worshipped, to be given the worth that he possesses. And even more plainly, number two, that was subtle. But this is plain in John chapter 5. Turn, turn there with me. There's no way around this. John chapter 5. As we saw last week, the rich young ruler is a challenging story. This isn't as much so. John 5, and we'll just look at verses 16 through 23. John 5, 16 through 23. Now, Jesus had just healed a man born lame... On what day of the week? The Sabbath. And that's the problem to the Jews. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So he's on their list because he did a work to them on the Sabbath. Ironic, but I will make myself not, not pause there. Verse 17, But he answered them saying, My father is working until now and I myself am working well, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, they were persecuting him before. They wanted to excommunicate him or do something to him. Now they want to kill him. Why? Well, before he just was a Sabbath breaker. Now he's a blasphemer to them. And I want to point out something to you very important that, that you need to know, because often if you say to somebody that Jesus is God, they'll say, oh, no, he's not God, he's the Son of God. I would have said that before I was a Christian in, in my cult. He's not God, he's the Son of God. But what does being the Son of God mean to Jesus? And what does it mean to them? What does John say? He was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now notice that is John's inspired comment. That's not just what they think. He's, he's saying that they correctly realize that when he says God is his father, he is putting himself on a par with God. Their problem was just that they didn't believe it. But they did get the message. And so Jesus uh, goes on to say that the son does what he sees the father doing. Verse 20, the father loves the son and shows all things to him. But now verse 21, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the son. Now here's the clicker, verse 23, so that all will honor the son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Or you could just as well translate that, so that all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus saying, not Christian theology a thousand years later, Jesus. All must honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Because the Son does what the Father does. Because the Son is God as the Father is God. So men must honor the Son as God just as they honor the Father as God. And not just that. Look at the next words again. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So when Jesus claims to be Son of God, he's not claiming to be less than God. He's putting himself on a par with God as to his deity. He is equally God to God the Father. And he demands equal honor. And he says that's the Father's demand as well. That's the Father's intent, that all honor the Son as they honor the Father. But even more, notice that he says, if you don't honor the Son as you honor the Father, you don't honor the Father either. Because that is the Father's will. So again, I would have said before I was saved, and many say today, well, I worship God, I I just don't really need Jesus. To which now we learn that God says, you don't worship me at all. If you worshiped me, you'd worship my son. You'd worship my son equally to the worship you give me. If we don't honor the son as God, we don't honor the father either. Letter D then, finally we add that Jesus is Yahweh. Y-A-H-W-E-H. The uh, personal name for God in the Hebrew Old Testament. Just the Old Testament, not the New. But all over the Old Testament. More than 6,800 times He's called Yahweh. And where does Jesus say that He's Yahweh? Well, in the Gospel of John, in John eight fifty eight. Turn there. Now He's arguing with Jews... Here, yet again. And he says verse fifty two, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste of death, ever. And then they say, Well, you're not greater than Abraham who died, are you? The prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And he says, Well, if I glory myself, glorify myself, my glory's nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, you say, he's our God. And you've not known him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham, Abraham who lived around when? Around 2100 BC. Long, 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 long time ago, even older than Methuselah. Uh, two and a half Methuselahs ago. And that Jews say to him in verse 57, Are you, you're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And what does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I was. Is that what he says? If you're looking at the words, you know he says before Abraham was, I am. Now, If he said I was, that would be a huge claim. He'd be saying that he's more than 2,000 years old. That would be quite a claim. But he's not saying that he started to be more than 2,000 years ago. He's saying that he's always been. That's what I am means. I've always been. Of course I was here when Abraham was here. I've always been. Well, who has always been? Angels, right? No. Have angels always been? No. Angels are not eternal. Well, who's always been? Only God. God. You say, I'm not sure I agree with that interpretation. Well, the Jews did. How do I know that they did? Look at the next verse. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because he, he said he was 2,000 years old? No, that would just make him crazy. You don't stone people for being crazy. Why were they going to stone him? Blasphemy. He claimed to be God. They're right about that. They're only wrong about one thing. What was that? He actually was God. <laughs> that was their critical miscalculation. He actually was who he said he was. He actually was God. So he claims to be Yahweh. That, that I am, of course, your mind goes back to Exodus 3 when Moses sees Yahweh in the bush that's burning but not consumed, right? And he says, what's your name? And he says, I am that I am. I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, he's that person. And if you look back there, you'll see the angel of God appeared to to to, uh, Moses, so this same person that we were studying in Genesis. Claims to be God. I am. And here he is again saying, I am. So, Jesus says so and the apostles say so. Turn to Romans chapter 10, our next to last verse. Do turn there. Because you need to look at a couple of verses here. We're going to look at Romans 10 13. Now this is a, a familiar uh, verse to most of you I trust. Romans 10 13 Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Say, oh yeah, I absolutely I do know that verse. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well what Lord are we talking about? What Lord? The Lord the Father or, or, or Lord Jesus? Well uh, you don't need to guess that either. You just trace up to verse 9. In verse 9, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as, what does it say? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him, you'll be saved. Confess Him as Lord and you'll be saved. And then verse, six, uh, verse um, 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's the Lord Jesus. Okay, that's clear. It's... But wait a minute. There's another funny thing about that. Verse 13 is all in capital letters, if you're looking at the LSB. Why is it all in capital letters? Does that mean I should read it twice as loud? What does that mean? I can't hear you. It's an Old Testament quotation, that's right. An Old Testament quotation. Where from? Well, if you look in your, in your margin, you see it's from Joel, chapter 2, verse 32. And if you look that up, you see that Joel says, it will come about that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. So Paul takes a verse about Yahweh and applies it to Jesus. And when he does that, what is Paul calling Jesus? He's calling him Yahweh. He's giving him the name of God. And a number of other verses do that exact same thing. One of them is 1 Peter 3.15 just Note these things down. You don't need to turn there, but it'll, it'll be our last verse. Do if you want, of course. I'm never going to tell you not to turn to a Bible verse. But First Peter 3.15, the apostle says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Sanctify Christ as Lord That's interesting. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Or if I could reword that, give Christ a holy place as Lord. Hold Christ holy as Lord is what that means. Does Peter get that language somewhere, even though it's not in, in capital letters? I would have put it in capital letters. Where does Peter get that language? Well, probably your margin says he got it from Isaiah 8. And he did. He got it from Isaiah 8, verse 13, which I'll read to you. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it uses the same word Peter does. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should sanctify, whom you should hold as holy, see as holy. And so you see, Peter takes a verse about Yahweh of hosts and applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, without hesitation, both monotheistic Jews, Peter and Paul, take verses about Yahweh, and they apply them to Jesus. Jesus is called Yahweh. So, we began this sermon asking the question, who is the man? Who is this man, Jesus Christ? Who is he? And we are ready to answer one truth about Jesus is that he is fully God. He is everything it means to be God. Everything it means to be God is true of Jesus. The Nicene Creed put it very well. Uh, the best Bible teachers of the day got together to state the truth about the Trinity and they, they did a bang up job I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ the only begotten Son of God begotten of the Father before all worlds God of God light of light very God of very God begotten not made being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made you've got that in your outline there so I'll close by just suggesting five ways in which this matters a lot. There are five ways in which this makes a huge amount of difference, this truth that Jesus... Well, there are at least five ways that Jesus is fully God. For one thing, it shows that the Bible is all one book with one message. Number one, the Bible is one book with one message. The New Testament isn't just tacked on uh, like a, a totally miserable... Uh, second movie in a series <laughs> or follow-up song by a one-hit wonder band no it's not it is the it is the conclusion of the story of the bible it, it is it, it it brings to the plain light of day the truths that are already in the old testament so the bible is one book with one message secondly that Jesus is God is important because that is who Jesus actually is And anything named Jesus that is not actually God is an idol. Made up. It's a fiction. It's toothless. It's powerless. won't save anyone, won't judge anyone, won't do anything for anybody. Because it's unreal. The only Jesus who actually is, is the Jesus who is God. Thirdly, because it means there's no escaping Jesus. You can escape Jesus when you can escape God. And hint, you can't. It's his universe. Everywhere there's a universe, God is there. He made it all. He's bigger than it. He fills it. And that means Jesus is all through it. So you say, Well, I can't wait till I move out from my parents' house. I don't have to think about Jesus anymore. Yeah, maybe so, but you won't you wouldn't get away from Jesus. And I can't wait till the service is over, don't hear I have to hear Jesus. Well, but the thing is you can't get away from Jesus. There is no escaping Jesus. Jesus is God. He's not just a nice thought, he is God. Fourth, because it means we can utterly trust Him. We can utterly trust Him. You see, I've been hesitating because my sins are so great. I'm such a a weak person. I have so many miserable flaws. I I just feel broken. I just just feel broken. And I don't even know if there's a point in trying to come to Jesus because I just know I'd botch it. I know I'd mess it up. There's no way I could be saved. Oh, you see, but there's the thing. The reason why Jesus is such a good Savior is because He's God. He has all the power God has because He is God. He's God the Son. And whom He saves, He saves, like the book of Hebrews says, to the uttermost. And a fifth truth, fifth way this matters is because we can live in hopeful assurance that Jesus will win. We can live in hopeful, absolute certainty that Jesus will win. One day, He will be King of kings and Lord of lords on this planet. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Even the ones who are pounding their chests and pounding their keyboards and boasting and bragging and so, so absolutely assured that Jesus is not real, they will confess that He's Lord. My great prayer, my petition, my desire is that they would confess that He's Lord before it's too late. That you would confess that Jesus is Lord before it is too late. Because you will confess it one day. You confess it today, you confess it to your salvation You confess it to your absolute eternal life with him. He will save you. He will keep you. He will never forsake you. And that's because Jesus Christ is fully God. Let us pray. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for Jesus and the the full glorious revelation of who he is. My prayer is that Anyone who's come in not knowing him, that that person will be drawn to believe in him. And anyone weak or faltering, that that they'll be encouraged to look on their Savior and know the mighty power he has to hold them and never let them go. Such is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.